0: Um, It's Job chapter 40, starting at verse 6, which is actually on 460 in your Bibles. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourselves like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Would you just credit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourselves? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourselves with glory and splendor and clothe yourselves in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that you own, that your own right hand can save you. Look at behemoth, which I made along with you, and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its irons, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of its thighs are close knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first amongst the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with the sword. The hills bring in their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants it lies, hidden amongst the reeds in the marsh. The locusts conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure through the Jordan, should surge against its mouth? Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? Can you pull in Levithion with a a fishhook or tie it down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging for its mercy? Will you speak to it with gentle words? Will it make an arrangement with you? For you to take it as its slave for life can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young woman in your house will trade as barter for it will they divide it up amongst the merchants can you hi- can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears if you lay a hand on it you will remember the struggle and never do it again any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. It will not fail to speak of Levithion's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip of its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armour? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields, tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like rays of dawn flames stream from its mouth sparks of fire sparks of fire shoot out smoke pours out from its from its nostrils as from boiling pot over burning reeds its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth strength resides in its neck dismay goes before it the odds of its flesh are tightly joined they are firm and immovable. Its chest is a hard rock, hard as a lower millstone. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. Sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear or dart from the javelin. Iron it treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make, f- make it flee. Slingstones stones... I like chaff to it. A cup seems t- a cup seems to it, but a piece of straw. It laughs, but rattling of the lance. It undersides. Its undersides are jagged potheads, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depth churn like a boiling cauldron, and it stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think that the deep had white hair. Nothing on the earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all who are haunty. It is king over all who are proud. One more. Okay, and we're going to finish with 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, which is on page 980. Actually, sorry, 981. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness.
1: Morning. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, uh, which turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Uh, this is a quote from uh, Ellie Weissel, a Holocaust survivor. Never. Shall I forget that night, the first night in camp which turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed? Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget the flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget those things, even if I'm consigned to live as long as God himself. Never. Uh, the words of Ellie Weissel, a Jewish survivor of uh, Auschwitz and Buchenwald Nazi con- concentration camps. And despite... Weissel's experience, and despite these words that he penned after that experience, he did continue to believe in God, but a faith that was wounded, as he describes it. He believed in God, but remained angry with him. And the question of evil, the question of why God allows such evil, has troubled both believers and unbelievers. It is not just an intellectual struggle, isn't it? It is a struggle to understand and trust in God. It's a struggle to see him clearly. And after reading the book of Job over these uh, sessions, and after all we've seen in the book of Job, the question remains. Yes, we might be able to cry out to God with our complaint, more freely. We might even see now that there is a mediator, that we have a mediator. There is a concrete hope, a rescue that is on the way. But here and now, the question of why just grows louder and louder. Will God answer Job? Well, there's a whole chunk that we're not covering this morning and you may have noticed we only got to the end of chapter 20 yesterday and there's uh, there's 22 more chapters. And so to summarise the bits that we're not covering in detail, the third round of speeches, which we didn't cover, Job moves from his personal experience to global suffering and asks the question... Why doesn't God bring justice to the world? He says to his friends, look at the evil around us. Why doesn't God do something about it? Chapters 29 to 31, Job issues a final challenge, like a closing statement in a court case. Job challenges God to present his case. Why have you destroyed me without cause? And he challenges God either to... Indict Job or clear him of all charges. So have a look in chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 35. Oh, that I had someone to hear my case. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. This is Job's challenge. Will God answer? Well, next we hear from Elihu, chapters 32 to 37, the longest speech in the book of Job. And Elihu is a controversial character. He's not actually mentioned until this point, just pops out of nowhere. And he's not mentioned afterward either, simply ignored. And there are a whole range of different views about what to do with this character, Elihu. But basically, Elihu is a young man who can't stand Job's challenge going unanswered. He can't stand the silence. And so he takes it upon himself to hear the case and to act as the the arbiter, this arbiter that Job has been looking for. But in the end... It turns out Elihu is a bit of a letdown, actually. <laughs> he, he doesn't say anything new. He ends up condemning Job as one of the wicked, just like the friends did. And, and, and this is the, the key thing. He thinks the idea that God will turn up and address Job's concerns, that is ridiculous. He said, why on earth, Job, would God appear to you, one of the wicked? Why would he appear and answer your questions? It's not going to happen. And so, at the end of Elihu's speech, and after all of the book of Job, we're, we're still in the dark. There is no solution. No solution to vindicate righteous Job and to justify God's actions. It feels like it's going to be one or the other. No solution to the question of how God could allow such evil. Uh, I I don't know if you've ever been asked this question by uh, a skeptic. Uh, A few months ago, we held an event in the university halls at Massy in Palmerston North where I work and we run these Q&A nights where people will invite their their friends and we call it grill a Christian or roast a Christian and so we have a visiting speaker come in and a Christian in the residential halls will invite the entire hall to come along and ask the toughest questions that they have and they're actually quite fun. I, I think actually they're one of the most enjoyable things I do in my job. Um, because people really open up. People can get kind of aggro as well, which I find quite fun. And um, you try and remain calm and speak rationally. But there was one student at this event a few months ago, uh, a young woman who was sitting right in the middle and was asking questions in in quite an aggressive way. She, She seemed quite closed to the faith. But then eventually this question came, Why did God let my brother struggle with cancer for five years and then die when he was 21? How can that kind of a God be loving? What what do you say to that? I I tried my best, I expressed sympathy, I gave my best response. But someone in that kind of position, what, what they need is not an argument from me. They need to, to meet God himself. They, they need to hear from him. And the best human wisdom ultimately will be disappointing and empty. As we heard Paul quoting the book of Job in 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of the wise is, is foolishness. Our best attempts to work God out will fail. The only solution would be if God showed up. If we had an encounter with God that gave us enough to trust him. And even though at the end of Elihu's speech we feel like, well, that's it. I guess we're done. The surprise is that God actually does show up. That is exactly what happens for Job and as we'll hear in Jesus for the world. And so, that very long introduction, let's look at chapter 38. God shows up. Chapter 38, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. As appearance of the Lord himself, it it just contains all sorts of surprises. Firstly, that God actually shows up. That in itself is a surprise. Because Job has hoped for it, the friends have denied that it would ever happen, and Elihu says, God will certainly not appear before you. But he does. He is not the God who simply sits from afar judging mankind. But the second surprise is he doesn't destroy Job as Job had feared. He engages him in a conversation. He overwhelms him not with judgment but with questions. And even pauses halfway through his speech to to ask Job, have you got anything to add? And the third surprise is the content of the speech because this is a very unusual conversation, not an argument so much, as a grand tour of the cosmos during which the Lord asks Job to comment on all of the things in the world that supposedly he knows about and has control of. A grand tour of the cosmos. Job is asked, tell me, Job, what kind of involvement do you have in these parts of the world? (laughs) Did you create this? Are you involved in this? Do you sustain this part? The deep foundations of the earth? The limits for the sea? Do you command the dawn? Are you present at the the depths of the ocean? Or know where the, the source of light and darkness are? Storage for snow and hail and wind... And rain and lightning and ice, the constellations of the stars, the clouds, the water cycle. Job is asked, do you you govern the the animal world? Provide prey for the lion and the raven. (coughs) Chapter 39. Are you present like a midwife at the birth of mountain goats? Did you create the wild donkey that cannot be tamed? The strength and independence of the wild ox? Have you seen the bizarre behavior of the ostrich, who wanders around proud and even leaves her young? Or the majesty of the horse? Or the high fortresses of the hawk and the eagle? And halfway through in in chapter 40, Job is asked, Job, do you have any comment? I'm listening if you want to correct me or or teach me about how I'm running all of this stuff. Anything? And of course, Job is silent. Chapter 40, verse 3, Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. Of course, Job is not in a position to give God advice on running the universe. Creation is immense, complex. It's, it's so beyond our, our power and our imagination. God created all these things. He governs, oversees them, the powerful, the wonderful, even the, the strange and weird. And it, all of it is Breathtaking. And, of course, today, for us, the the more we uncover about the natural world, the more we realise its complexity and the the power of the the world is just beyond us. The astronomer Carl Sagan tells us there are deep sky photographs that show more galaxies beyond the Milky Way, our galaxy, than there are stars within our galaxy. Every one of them, an island universe containing perhaps 100 billion suns, And then the neurologist David Eagleman will tell us, within the very mind that is thinking that thought, the average neuron has about 10,000 connections to neighboring neurons. And given the billions of neurons in the human brain, it means there are as many connections in a single cubic centimeter of brain tissue as there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. (coughs) See, just the tiniest glimpse we get of God's ways overwhelms us and puts us in our place. Well, next, and after the intermission that God gives to Job, he leads him to another dimension of the world, another area that Job doesn't rule over, first the natural world, but the second the moral world the world of God's justice. And it's clear that Job is not in a position to manage this part of the world either. Chapter 40, verse 6. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. See, in his attempt to defend his innocence in that dilemma, Job was in danger of condemning God in order to justify himself. And the Lord asks, do you think you could do a better job of running the universe? Well, if you do, go ahead. There we go. Unleash your fury on the world. And it's designed, I think, to be semi-comical, actually. Because, of course, he can't. He's not in a position to blast the wicked. But also, it's an incredibly profound point Because this solution to blast evil away immediately is not the way that the Lord chooses to govern the creation. There's a deep truth here. God chooses instead to work with the chaotic forces within this world. And he illustrates it by parading two creatures before Job. These chaotic beasts, the behemoth from chapter 40, verse 15... And then Leviathan in chapter 41. Now there's a bit of a debate over whether these are uh, real creatures or mythical creatures. And I'll let you debate that over lunchtime. Uh, I'm not going to go there. But firstly, we meet Behemoth, a powerful beast. He eats grass. He's built like a tank. No one can face him. You don't want to get near this thing. No one can approach it with a sword or tame it. The second creature, Leviathan, fire-breathing sea creature. And it turns out God is particularly proud of this creation because he spends an entire chapter, as we heard, going on about it. The Lord is, like, really excited about Leviathan. And Leviathan, well, you don't want to meet this thing in a dark alley. It is wild. It has terrible teeth. Its back is plated. It breathes fire and smoke. It has thick skin and strikes terror into mankind. Weapons just bounce off. You know, arrows, they just bounce off it. And when it moves in the ocean, it turns it to mist and chaos. These two dark, mighty, untamed, chaotic creatures. But creatures... That God rules over. Creatures that God has placed within the world. See, the world includes things that, many things, doesn't it, that we might think of as a little strange, ugly, even chaotic. It's not all sunsets and rainbows, isn't it? Have you heard of the naked mole rat? (laughs) There are ugly things. There are, there are strange things like the ostrich. There are there are violent and scary things, creatures which which tear their prey apart. But to God they are His creatures and they serve His purposes. Now, how does this address the question of evil that Job has posed? Well, God is able to make all of these things work for His purposes. They have a place within his universe, and yes, even evil itself, even the wicked, the tragic things of this world. And we might object and say, no, that cannot be the case, and and it's wrong, but yet God uses even chaotic forces, tragedy, injustice, things which wreak havoc. Somehow, it is all part of his good plans as John Calvin says. So great and boundless is God's wisdom that he knows right well how to use evil instruments to do good. And here we come to the conclusion. Job has seen God. And the solution is not a rational argument. There's no explanation here in accounting line by line for each instance of evil within the universe and its exact reason. Instead, what the Lord provides is a glimpse of himself and his power. And that's what we see in Job's response in chapter 42. And it really points the way for us. What is the way forward for us in our personal suffering, and our questions about the way God runs this world. Listen to these words from Job 42. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. First, Job acknowledges. He he was talking about things that he really knew nothing about. Things too wonderful for him. He realises that now. God is far bigger than he imagined. But second, now that he has seen God, he, he doesn't need an argument. He doesn't need to press his case. And that, I think, is what the repentance is here. Repent simply means to regret a course of action and to turn around. In fact, even the Lord repents. In the Old Testament. So repentance isn't necessarily for sin. And here, Job repents not of his sin, but from pursuing an explanation from God. He's seen God. He he doesn't need this court case anymore. God has shown up and God has given him more than he asked for. He's satisfied. Why? Because God has revealed himself and his glory in such a way that it is enough for him. And in fact, the whole ending of the book of Job is a massive win and vindication for, for Job. His friends are condemned. Uh, they're even told they need Job to act as a mediator for them so that, so that they can be forgiven of, of their speaking wrongly about God and Job. And then finally, the Lord restores Job twice what he had before. And, and why is this? Well, again, it's a mystery. Why did God take away only to give back again? We don't know. But it's, it's a bonus that God throws in at the end. See, what, what do we really need? To still our questioning hearts, what do we need to trust God, even when we don 't have an answer to that question? Why we need to see God, not a, not a rational argument job isn 't given a reason, not a theodicy to, to an argument to justify God, but a theophany, a revelation of God. The solution is not an argument but an encounter. God reveals himself and this brothers and sisters is what God has done for us in Christ here we meet God face to face literally God has a face at the cross what do we understand about suffering what do we see at the cross at the cross we we see solidarity that God is not indifferent. It's not that God doesn't care. We can rule that out because he has entered into the pain and confusion of this world and experienced it in the person of the Son. But second, at the cross, we, we see hope, don't we? We see the mediator. We see that there is an end to suffering because we have an advocate, one who fights for us. And he comes, he comes to destroy the reign of evil over the world. To destroy the powers of hell. And we see that there is an end to evil in the cross. But here at the end of Job, what do we see? Well here, and also at the cross, more clearly than anywhere else, we see the wisdom and power of God we see in the cross that God can take the most evil things and turn them for his good purposes. How does God overcome evil at the cross? Not through unleashing his fury on the world, leveling everything. How does God address evil at the cross? By absorbing it and by using the chaos of the evil that was directed against Christ. To bring that very redemption that the world needs. See, the wisdom of the world fails. But when we meet Jesus, we meet true wisdom and power. And so, here's an invitation come and meet. Jesus, come face to face with him. William Cooper was an English poet, uh, an incredible poet and hymn writer, but who endured immense mental suffering, depression. He lost his mother when he was very young, his, his brother later in life. He experienced long periods where he was declared insane, bouts of suicidal thoughts. And yet, during the moments he was lucid, he wrote some of the most beautiful poetry in the English language. And I want to finish with uh, these words from a hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and rides upon the storm. Deep in an unsearchable mine of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break, and blessings on your head. Shall we pray? Father, your wisdom is unsearchable, your paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? From you, through you, to you are all things. And Father, we pray that you would show us Christ, that you'd deepen our grasp of your wonderful power, your majestic wisdom. That we see a glimpse of in the things you 've made that you 've opened up to us in the cross of your Son the Lord Jesus, and we pray that there you would give us a glimpse enough of a glimpse of you that would we would be able to continue that we would be able to continue laboring on in the service of the Lord Jesus in weakness and rejoicing, knowing that your plans for us are good that Beyond the frowning providence of our experience lies a smiling face that you rejoice in us, that in Christ, our future is secure, and that through him we have that promise that death and Satan and evil we've thrown in the deepest pit and Christ will be all in all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.